You know, there's actually four seasons, and I think a lot of times these seasons, God's put them in place because many times they actually mimic certain things in our life. Um, There's summer, and in the summer, especially in southwest Louisiana, it gets really, really hot. And when it gets really hot, it kind of kills everything. I personally like summer because it kills all my grass, and I hate grass. Um, But summer is hot. It kind of sucks the life out of everything. And what summer does is it slows progress down. You ever feel like that in your life that sometimes you've been like in a season of summer where you feel like you just can't gain any traction? You feel like maybe you were making progress, maybe in your job, maybe in your career, maybe you were making progress in your relationship or your marriage, and all of a sudden you feel like you come to this place where it just kind of slows down and you feel like you can't get any traction, you feel like you can't get any movement. And then there's spring. Or spring, everything begins to bloom. Everything begins to grow. Everything is beautiful. Everything is pretty. The, the weather actually starts to get a little bit cooler. It feels nice outside. You see kids playing outside in southwest Louisiana. We, we stay inside for most of the time. But spring is where maybe it mimics your life where you start getting some traction. Maybe you start growing, you start learning some things. Maybe, maybe you've worked on that marriage or you've worked on that job and you start to see things change. And then there's fall. Fall kind of represents where everything in the seasons begin to change. The trees begin to turn different colors. The grass begins to look a little bit different. Everything begins to change and it kind of mimics this idea. You ever been in a season where it feels like nothing is normal? where nothing in your life is just absolute, where like we've been moving and we've had a baby and I feel like there hasn't been a single day where it's just normal. And you, ever, you know what I'm talking about, where you get into your routine and you go to work and then you come home and you play with the kids and maybe you watch a show and you connect with your wife and then you go to bed and, and you're happy with your routine. But oftentimes fall brings about this kind of season where everything is just changing. And you feel like you can't really get a grasp on everything because as soon as you do, it changes. And then there's a season called winter. Now, winter is cold. It's dark. It's bleak. It's where literally everything in nature just pauses. Nothing can grow. Nothing can do anything. No progress is made. The snow covers the ground. And it seems like everything that you were just working towards, you stop, you pause, you kind of bury in. And that's what life begins to look like. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about what about what happens when you find yourself in a season of winter or rather a season of waiting. How many of you have ever just been waiting on God? You're like, God, I'm just waiting for you to give me an answer. Show of hands in here. How many of you have ever just said, God, I need an answer and I feel like I've been waiting forever. Anybody in here? That's what I want to talk about this morning. What happens when your season of waiting no longer feels like a season, it feels like your life? (laughs) What happens when you're like, God, this is not a season anymore? This, this has been seven years. This has been ten years. I have been waiting and waiting. I've been praying. I've been seeking God, and I feel like nothing. Maybe you feel stuck. Maybe you feel at this point in life, you feel like God must be working against me. Let's just be honest. How many of you ever felt like that? God is working against me. I feel like everything that I do, every progress that I make, I feel like there's a setback that meets me in the middle of the road. But the big question that I want to answer this morning is this. What happens when we quit too early because our season is too hard? 
What happens when we quit too early? How many of you know the greatest temptation in a season of waiting, when you have been gaining traction or you've been gaining ground on something, the most tempting thing to do is just say, I quit. I quit. Like, I don't want to push through anymore. You ever got something where you, you've built up this endurance and you kept running and you kept going and then you finally reach a place where you're like, man, I'm, this isn't going anywhere. I quit. I quit. But what happens when we quit too early. I want to point you to a passage in 2 Kings, and it's this rather obscure story that happens in the Bible. It's not really this popular um, text. It's not something that we preach about a lot, but I think it's so um, important for what I want to talk about this morning. And before I share the story with you, let me, let me set up a little context so you know what's going on. They had this king, and his name is Jehoash. He is the king of Israel, and he is at war with the king of Judah. And their kingdoms are kind of divided, and they're fighting each other, and they're at war with each other. But Jehoash has an advantage on his side. He has the prophet Elisha. Now, the prophet Elisha, for literally years, has prophesied to different kings in Israel, hey, if you go out and fight this battle, God's going to be with you. Go fight this battle. You'll win. Now, Jehoash is about to fight this huge, epic battle with the king of Judah, and he doesn't know what to do, and he hears that Elisha is about to die. So he's freaking out. So it says he goes and and he visits the prophet Elisha, and he begins to mourn his death. And he's not mourning his death because he's about to lose a friend. He's mourning his death because he's about to lose God's protection. At the end of the day, he's about to say, well, you're, you're God's mouthpiece, and once you go, once you die, like, how am I going to know what to do? How am I going to know what battles to fight? So we see in the text that Elisha is literally on his deathbed, and he says, okay, Jehoash, you want to continue to win battles? You want to continue to be victorious? Here's what I need you to do. And now watch, Elisha is going to give Jehoash this somewhat unusual series of instructions that just don't make any sense. How many of you have ever been like in a season of waiting and you feel like the path that God has you on just doesn't make any sense? You're like, God, I don't know why you're bringing me down this road, but it doesn't make any sense. So watch this, 2 Kings chapter 13. So it says, remember, Elisha's in his deathbed. Jehoash is saying, okay, Elisha, what do I do? I'm about to go fight the king of Judah. Am I going to win? Is God going to be with me? What is going to happen? And so it says, Elisha says this, get a bow and some arrows. Get a bow and some arrows. And he does so. Then he tells him, take the bow in your hands. And when Elisha commands Jehoash to do this, the king immediately complies. So when the king raises the bow and arrow, Elisha puts his hand on the king's hand. He says, open the east window, he says. And the king opens it. And Elisha says, shoot. And Jehoash shoots. The Lord's arrow of victory. The arrow of victory over the king of Judah. Elisha declares, you will completely destroy this kingdom. Then he says, take the arrows, and the king takes them. Elisha tells him, strike the ground, and he strikes the ground with the arrows three times. Then the scripture tells us something that is quite unexpected. So I want you to keep in mind something. Everything that Elisha has instructed Jehoash to do, Jehoash has done it. He said, hey, open the east window, shoot the arrow. All right, take the arrow out of the quiver, beat it on the ground, strike it on the ground. How many of you, this, like, what is going on here? Like, why, okay, why, uh, I'm asking you if I need to fight. I want to win this battle. Is God going to be with me? And, and you're telling me to shoot an arrow and then whack an arrow on the ground. Like, what is going on? Second Kings 13, 18 through 20. Let me back up just a little bit. In, in verse, um, 
in verse 17, when Elisha tells him, he says, strike the ground, he strikes it three times, and he stops. This is going to be extremely significant throughout the rest of this series. So just keep this in mind. He strikes the ground three times, and he stops. It says, the man of God, in verse 18, it says, the man of God was angry with him. So Elisha is angry with Jehoash. He says, you should have struck the ground five or six times, then you would have defeated Judah. And completely destroyed it. But now you defeat only three times. Right after he says this in the story, Elisha dies and they bury him. So, so let's pause for a moment here. Much of what happens in this story does not make any sense to our modern mind. Okay, I'm asking you if I can win this battle and if God is going to be with me. You tell me to shoot an arrow, then you tell me to strike it on the ground, and then you get mad at me because I only struck it three times, but you didn't tell me to struck it five or six times. And Elisha is angry at him because he said, well, if you would have struck the ground six times, then you would have just kept winning. But if you notice, Elisha never gave him specific instructions. He never said, just keep striking the ground six or seven times. So why didn't Elisha explain to him these specific instructions. Have you ever been in a season of your life where you're like, God, I need some specific instructions on what to do next? And then you kind of go off and you follow, and then all of a sudden you, you realize that what you did maybe wasn't exactly what God wanted you to do, and it leaves you in a place just like Jehoash. Wait, wait, hold on, God. I, I thought I was obeying what you wanted me to do, and now you're angry at me, and you're mad at me, and I'm so confused. See, when Elisha told him to strike the ground with the arrows, the prophet left the instructions open-ended. Now, let me point you back to the text. It's not insignificant that the text says the man of God was angry with him. He was angry at Jehoash for only hitting the ground with the arrow three times. Now, why was he angry? Clearly, there's something going on behind the scenes in this story. Now, I'm not um, saying that I'm going to get it completely right, so I'm just kind of speculating, but clearly there's something else going on, because Elisha is frustrated. He's angry at Jehoash, and it centers around one decision. He's angry because he only struck the ground three times. He's angry because he struck the ground three times, and then he stopped. Putting it another way, he quit. He quit. He didn't keep striking it. He, he, I don't know if maybe he got embarrassed. Maybe he thought, like, this is beneath a king. Like, if, if one of my servants walks in and sees me striking an arrow on the ground like an idiot, they're going to think I'm stupid, right? Or, or maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe he felt ridiculous. Maybe he was tired. Like, Elisha, just give me specific instructions. Why am I striking this arrow? But the fact that he stopped striking the ground meant something. It meant something. It meant he wasn't determined enough to receive the full measure of God's intention for him, and therefore he quit too soon, and he's going to end up losing battles. I wonder how many times in our life when we go into seasons that are difficult, that are hard, and we think we've failed, but in reality we've just quit. We've just quit. Because the truth is, in, in seasons of difficulty, in seasons in our life when they just don't make sense, it's so tempting to quit. What if in reality we're not actually failing at the things that we're actually failing at? We just got tired and we thought we looked ridiculous and we quit. And we didn't learn the lesson that God wanted us to learn. See, quitting is the greatest temptation when we find ourselves in seasons of waiting. I don't know about you, but I'm a very impatient person. 
I don't, I don't like to wait for anything. Like nothing. Like if I show up to McDonald's, I mean, and I order, I want my food like now, right? I don't know about you, but when I sit in a red light, like I, I don't want to wait at a red light. Like I want to, yellow means step on the gas and go as quick as you can, right? I blew through a yellow light the other day and my son was in the back seat. He's like, Dad, aren't you supposed to slow down for that? I was like, they'll teach you that later in life, but this is important right now. (laughs) Yellow means speed up, son. But see, in seasons of waiting, instead of pushing through the pain, instead of pushing through the agony of waiting, we convince ourselves that it'll just be easier to quit and move on to something else. See, Elisha saw Jehoash as someone who just didn't want it bad enough. I want to ask you a question this morning. How badly do you want God to be victorious in your life? How badly do you want to know God's plan for your life? Because oftentimes, the amount of us pushing through and not quitting and not stopping shows how much we really want God to work in our life. I wonder how many victories are lost before the battle has ever begun. I wonder how many times in my own life I thought I failed, but in reality I just quit. Think about that for a moment. We look at life and when things get hard we think, oh, I'm failing. Oh, I blew it. I didn't get it right or I missed the mark or I didn't hear God. wonder if we heard God all along it just got hard and we didn't like it. And so we quit As soon as the going got tough, I can assure you this, whatever season you find yourself in now, I assure you that God is calling you to do one thing. He's calling you to push through, not quit. You know, there's one thing that I've learned in this season that I've been, I I feel like Claire and I have been in a season of waiting. God, where, where are you taking the church? God, what about this? Or God, personally, this baby was supposed to come, and then, he's, then she's a week late. We're waiting, and then we're waiting for house, and all these other things going on. I don't know if you know this, but oftentimes God does his best work in the seasons of waiting if we can just learn to change our perspective in the middle of it. God's not punishing us. He's actually pruning us. See, there's a difference. A lot of times we think when we're waiting, oh, God's not on my side, he's not for me, but in reality, God is just refining us. He's just doing some things in our life. I want you to know that in your season of waiting, in your season of pain, that there is a purpose for it. See, God is a logical God. Everything that you go through, there is a reason. It's not like God just throws things on you and says, oh, figure it out. I don't have a purpose for this. I want to encourage you to do something today. I want to encourage you to take the path of resistance. Because those that continue to take the path of least resistance will never grow. Those that continue to take the path that is the easy way out, the path that says, okay, if you just go through here, you don't have to fight, you don't have to push, you don't have to go through any pain. See, pressure and resistance causes you to grow. There is a reason for your season. There is a reason for everything that you're going through right now in your life. Ecclesiastes 3.1 even puts it this way. For everything, there is a season. A time for every activity under heaven. So here's what this means. The sovereign God of the universe has a purpose for whatever you're going through right now. And oftentimes we can look at the circumstances of our life and say, God, I don't know how you're going to find any purpose in this. 
God, how, how, how am I going to find any purpose in me being stressed out about how this job is going to work out or where I'm going to move or, or who I'm going to marry or where I'm going to go and what my kids are going to do? Like, where is the purpose in all of that? What I've learned in the past few months that God is more concerned about my perspective than he is about my waiting. Because, <laughs> man, in seasons of waiting, it's so easy to just get stressed out. It's so easy to go, man, I've got all these things going on, but I'm not pushing through. I'm not making any progress. And we want to just back out. And we just want to quit. And we just want to give up rather than push through. How many of you have ever heard of a sequoia tree? Anybody? The largest tree on planet Earth. They only grow on the West Coast. They have a whole forest of them called the Redwoods. Maybe you've heard of the Redwoods. Now, these trees are the largest, oldest living organism on planet Earth. Okay, so they actually have a tree that they've named um, General Sherman, and they estimate it to be around 3,500 years old. That is an old tree. 3,500 hundred years old. Now the interesting thing about these trees is these trees only reproduce by seeds. Now the seeds are actually locked in these cones that these sequoias drop off of their branches. Now what's interesting about these trees is for it to ever grow into another tree, this seed has to be released out of this cone. Now, they say that oftentimes when this seed hits the ground, it's inside this cone. And oftentimes a seed will stay inside of that cone for 20 years. So it hits the ground, and you have this seed that is locked inside of this cone that the sequoia creates. And for it to ever become a tree, it has to get out of this cone somehow. And it can't do it on its own. It's not like God programmed it with this mechanism where over time the cone will begin to waste away and then the seed will come out. There's actually only one way that the seed comes out. It's the most common way that it comes out, and the only way that it comes out is when they have forest fires. And there is this pressure that begins to come, and there is this fire that actually begins to burn this cone open, and the seed is unlocked through the fire, through this pressure. And as soon as the fire has burned this cone, the seed releases, it gets planted into the soil, and then it takes about another hundred years for this seed to even gain any kind of height. I wonder how many times God has us locked in this cone for a reason, like this sequoia seed. See, oftentimes we think we're just sitting around waiting. We think we're just sitting around just waiting on God, but as I said earlier, God has a purpose in your waiting. And sometimes the pressure, listen to me, the pressure that you feel in life right now is the fire that is going to unlock the growth that God is trying to do inside of you. The pressure you feel right now, you see it as stress. You see it as overwhelming. I don't know how to handle this, but God says, no, I'm burning the cone away. I'm starting to burn the cone away, and as soon as I burn this cone away, I'm going to unlock this seed. But then here's the crazy thing. As soon as I unlock this seed, what happens? Now I drop you into the ground, and I bury you, and I throw dirt over you, and it's cold, and it's dark, and you don't know what's going on. Imagine the seed. It gets out of this cone. It's like, finally, 20 years. <laughs> I've been locked in this cone. Finally, I will reach my potential. Boom, you get picked up and thrown into the ground, into a hole, and then you don't see any life for about another 50 years until you start growing. 
Imagine the waiting. Imagine if that seed could talk and be like, God, for real? (laughs) First you burn me, then you throw me in a hole, and then you're just like, just be patient and wait. It's going to be okay. (laughs) But what's crazy is 3,500 years, these trees are still alive. These trees are actually so big, they, they have a few of them that they've cut holes in, and you can drive an entire car through it. They're huge. They're massive. See, most of these trees were probably around by the time when Jesus was walking the earth. Imagine that, what they've seen, what they've experienced. But I want you to understand something. If you want to reach the potential that God has for you, you have to endure the season of waiting, and oftentimes the season of waiting requires fire and pressure and resistance and something that you don't want to go through, and it sucks in between. But God has a greater purpose for you. See, as human beings, we only see in part. And oftentimes when when I say we only see in part, we only see what's right in front of us right now. We see the lower bank account. We see the, oh my God, I don't know what I'm going to do with this. And God's saying, listen, I'm dropping all these things your way because what am I doing? I'm refining you. I'm I'm building character in you. Because when I finally bring you to the place that I have for you, You'll be ready for it. As I talked about the arrows earlier, you know, arrows are not actually meant for decor. An arrow was actually designed to be a part of battle, right? It was, it was designed to be a weapon. The question we must answer is this. Am I the kind of person who strikes three times and stops because the season is too hard? Or... Am I the kind of person who keeps striking until there's no arrows left? Here's what Elisha wanted Jehoash to do. He wanted him to take out every single arrow in his quiver and beat the ground until those arrows were wasted away and he had nothing left. That's what he wanted. So what kind of person are we? Are the kind of, okay, God, don't hit it three times, whack, whack, whack. All right, I'm done. God, where, where are you? <laughs> Give me victory. And God say, no, I want you to expend every last ounce of yourself in this season. I don't want you to miss this. It's, it's a curious kind of fact that Elisha had the king shoot the first arrow. Now, why did he have him shoot the first arrow? I, I believed he had him shoot the first arrow because God wanted to show Jehoash how far he could take him when he learned to release things and let God have it. Now, it's also significant that when he took the arrow and he put it in his own hands... And he whacked it. He only did it three times. And I think God wanted to prove something significant. If you leave it in your hands, you only get three victories. If you come it and you put it in my hand, he said, I'll take you farther than you ever thought that you could go. See, that's the significance in this story. As soon as we're in this season of waiting, here's what we have to learn to do. We have to learn to release things from our hands and go, okay, God, it's in your hands. Because how many of you know sometimes there is nothing that you can do to change your circumstances? And the only reason that we worry is because of the fact that it gives us some sense of control. Well, at least I, can, I can't change anything about it, so at least I can worry about it. <laughs> so I'll just continue to worry and stress myself out. When in reality, there's nothing that we could do. See, this is the paradox of how God works in our lives. We've got to learn to shoot the arrow. We've got to learn to release things to God to give it over to him. But we've also got to learn to come to a place where we strike the arrow and we take responsibility for what God has put in our hands. So listen, in a season of waiting, 
you going back to the basics is the most important thing that you can do. So what is in control in your hands? How much you seek God. You know what I've learned in this season of waiting when there's nothing that I can do? Man, prayer. That's something that's in my hands. I can seek God. I can pray. I can be in communion with him. I can, man, I can show up to community. I can be at church. I can be around like-minded people. I can share my soul and my heart with people. And as I begin to share and I confess things and I share about the weights and the busyness and the craziness of life, man, what does that do? It takes the things that are in my hand and it begins to give it over to God. There's a movie that came out in 1997. Um, unless you were somebody who liked the whole art world, you probably wouldn't even remember this movie. But in 1997, there was a movie called Gattaca. Anybody ever seen it? That's what I thought. Not a single soul in here. Great. But it's about these two brothers, Vincent and Anton. And um, Vincent is this guy who is, in, 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 in the world, he is the only normal human being. Every single other human being on planet Earth has been genetically modified to be like the perfect model of a human being. Their physique is perfect, their strength, their endurance, like everything about every other human being has been genetically modified to be perfect. And here's Vincent, this guy who's just like, I'm just a normal, average dude. So the movie is about these brothers who would always compete. And Vincent was always trying to beat Anton. He was always trying to prove that, man, I may not be genetically modified, but I've got something to give to this world. And every single scene in the movie, it was like Anton would crush him, where they would go on a race and he would run way past him. And whatever it was that they were doing, every time they competed, Vincent would always lose until this one time Vincent finally convinces Anton. He says, hey, let's go out to the ocean and let's see who can swim the furthest. Let's see who can go the longest. And so they get in the water, and they start swimming, and they start swimming, and they start swimming. And Anton begins to look over at Vincent, and he begins to notice that every stride he's keeping up with him. So Anton pushes harder and harder and harder and harder. And he notices that his brother, who is this normal human being, is still right on side of him. 30 minutes pass, and he looks, and he sees Vincent start gaining ground on him, and Anton starts to disappear into the distance. And Anton yells out to his brother Vincent, and he says, How are you doing this? How are you doing this? How are you winning? How are you beating me? You're just a normal human being. And his response is so powerful. He said, It's easy. You want to know how I did this? I saved nothing for the swim back. I saved nothing for the swim back. And, and, and Anton looks at him and he says, man, I got to go back or I'm not going to make it. I'm going to drown. And he said, no, the, 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 the shore that we're actually trying to swim to is closer. He said, I saved nothing for the swim back. That's the reason I'm winning. And he said, I'm just going to persist. He said, when I got in the water, I knew that I was going to have to make it to the other side or I was going to drown. How many times in difficult seasons are we thinking about the next season and failing to forget about the season that we're in now? How many times do we think about that when it's difficult and you just sit back and you dream about, man, when I can just get out of this, when I could just get out of this crazy relationship? Man, if, if my finances were just perfect, if I could just get out of this house, if I could just be there. 
Why do I share that story with you? I share that story with you because I believe in a season of waiting, we have to save nothing for the next season. The only way that we're ever going to learn anything in that season of waiting is giving it everything that we have now. Because here's the truth. Persistence is something that's going to win every single time. See, the, the reason that Vincent ends up beating Anton is just because he knew he was tired, he knew he was beat, he knew he was exhausted, but he was just determined to get to the other side. He saved no energy to go back, and he persisted, and he ends up beating his brother. See, when you're in a season of waiting, you have to give it everything that you've got. And listen to me, this is huge. Stop focusing on where you've come from and start focusing on where God is taking you. Stop focusing on all the things that you can't change. Stop focusing on the past that you, you, you regret and you feel shame about and you feel guilty about and that decision that you wished you never would have made. The truth is, the past is the past and there's nothing that we can do to change it. But the beauty of it is, when we surrender and we commit and we give our lives to Jesus, he literally erases the past. We can surrender that to him. So sometimes in your season of waiting, there's also a season of God burying you so that you can grow. You know, there's a, a song, I would encourage you to go listen to it, that uh, it came out maybe a month, two months ago. Perfect timing for my wife and I. And uh, it's a song that Hillsong wrote, and it's actually called Seasons. And one of the lines in there, it says, buried to grow. It says, from seed to sequoia. It says, from Bethlehem to Calvary. I don't know if you get this yet. Anything great starts with something insignificant. Did you know Jesus was born in a little town of Bethlehem that had about maybe 1,500 people in the town? That was it. Like you would think, like God's plan for the world, if he's going to usher in his son, the king of the universe, he would pick like some huge city where he could make all this impact, right? It'd be like today, God's saying, you know what, I'm just going to drop this, my son, into Crowley, Louisiana, <laughs> Right? I mean, every time I travel and I tell people, they're like, hey, where, where are you from? And if I say Crowley, they're like, where's that? Like, you know where New Orleans is? Yeah, I know where New Orleans is. Okay, it's about three hours from there. Okay, great. The most insignificant things start small. The most powerful things start in a way that we never thought. God often uses people that we never thought that he could use. God often saves people that we never thought that he would save. Some of your friends might be here in this church, and maybe you thought, man, like God could never grab a hold of them, and now they're sitting next to you. <laughs> See, God always uses small beginnings to do something significant in us. Erwin McManus, he wrote it this way, he says, if failure, if failure is our inevitable future, then let's fail boldly and fail forward. 
But whatever happens, let's not hide behind this excuse that we didn't give it everything we have. And I love this line. He says, perhaps the life we long for is beyond the point of no return. Perhaps the life we long for is beyond the point of no return. What is he saying there? Perhaps you're in a season of waiting today. You're in a season where you're going, God, I don't know what you're doing, and I don't know what's going on, and I don't like it. And so God would say to you today, man, if you haven't surrendered your life to me, then what do you have to lose? What do you have to lose? And if your life isn't going the way that you expected or the way that you wanted anyway, have you tried Jesus? Or maybe if you're in here today and you find yourself in a season of waiting and you're just frustrated. Maybe, maybe God to you is just this concept. This concept of, man, I grew up in church my whole life. Maybe I was Catholic and then I was Baptist and then I was Methodist and I came here and I don't know what the heck I am. What are you guys anyway? <laughs> maybe you have all these mixtures of things going on, but you don't really understand what an authentic relationship with Jesus looks like. And I don't know, maybe you've been scarred in life. Maybe you've had a series of just unfortunate events happen to you. Maybe you're angry at God. Maybe everything that I've said this morning, you're like, yeah, I'm in the season of waiting, but I don't see the purpose in it. I'm in the season of winter, but I've been in the season of winter for 10 or 15 years. and It just doesn't seem like God's going to come through for me. But what if this morning God just wanted to begin to change that perspective? What if you were the person that was that sequoia seed that was just locked in that cone and God's lovingly coming in with his fire and saying, okay, let me just begin to burn some things off and it may hurt and it may not feel good for a season, but in the end, it's going to be worth it. Listen, I don't know what you've gone through or what you're dealing with this morning, but I am positive of one thing God does. He does. He knows exactly where you're at. He knows exactly what season you find yourself in right now. So I just want to encourage you to do two things. Number one, if you don't know who Jesus is, in a few minutes we're going to give you an opportunity to make that decision. For the second person, if you're in here and you're just saying, man, I'm just in a season of just waiting. I feel like I've been just waiting on God forever. Maybe you need an answer Maybe you need to hear from God. Maybe, maybe you're at four set of crossroads in your life right now and you don't know what direction to turn. You don't know what to do and you don't know where to go. Should I start this business? Should I start this job? Should I marry this girl? Should I have these kids? What should I do? You don't know what to do. Number one, I want to encourage you. I know it may be hard, but don't quit. Don't quit. Because as I said earlier, oftentimes we look at failure as, man, I failed. I gave it everything I had, and it didn't work. I think sometimes we don't fail, we just quit. It's not failure that happens, it's just we give up because we're tired, we're spent. We've got no energy left, we've got nothing left to give. It's why community is so important. And it's why life groups are so important. Directly after this service, we're going to have next step. All it is is that you're going to walk down to where our kids meet and we'll have pizza and we'll have a time where we just share the vision and values of our church. Most importantly, we do next step because at the end of the day, we want you to get involved in the lifeblood of this church. 
We want you to have people that like when you're going through the difficult seasons, when you're going through the hard parts of life, when you're in the season of waiting, that there's people walking alongside of you. One of the most tragic things that you can do is enter into a season of winter and do it by yourself. Can I just be honest with you? If you enter into a season of winter by yourself, chances are you're not coming out. I I can honestly say the only reason that I've been able to accomplish anything in my life is because of other people. It's not because I'm that good. It's not because I'm that smart. I look back at some of the, the places in my life where I'm like, man, that was a win. And I can always picture people that were on the journey with me. To be honest with you, that was the reason that I got through it. That was the reason that I was able to endure that season of winter because, man, I knew there was other brothers, there was other people that were there along with me, helping me, pushing me, encouraging me, calling me out when I needed.